Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bad Movie Buds podcast. This is Dallas McFall speaking, and I'm with my lovely wife, Renee. Say what's up, Renee. What's up? We just got done watching. Well, first of all, this is our first episode of this podcast, and we don't really know what to expect. Our goal is to um, watch as many really, really bad movies. Some movies are going to be so bad that they're good. Some movies are going to be so bad that they're just bad. And we have started this first episode by watching the, um, not the amazing, because there actually was the, an amazing Spider-Man movie series, but we started this series with watching Spider-Man 3. Now, if you're listening and you know me even a little bit, I love Spider-Man. I am basically obsessed with Spider-Man. To the point where I have seen every movie. I've read quite a few of the comics growing up. I watched all the cartoons. Um, for Christmas a couple years ago, some of Renee's family got me Spider-Man action figures and Spider-Man shirts. I love Spider-Man. I love it. And I'm, a lot of people who are Spider-Man fans hate the Sam Raimi movies. They don't like Toby as Spider-Man. They think he's too whiny or whatever. Within reason, they're correct. But I've never been, like, an anti-Toby Maguire person. I've always, I've always thought he was a better Peter than a Spider-Man, for sure. You know, now, these days, we have Tom Holland, who, you know, is arguably the best of both worlds. He's the best Peter and the best Spider-Man. Uh, if you disagree with that, then you're going to have to start your own podcast, I guess. But I honestly, to me, it's no contest that Tom's the best Spider-Man, but... Without Toby, we wouldn't have a Tom. So, I've never been an anti-Toby Maguire era Spider-Man fan. I think the first Spider-Man was great. My mom took me to see that in 2002 when I was eight years old, and I thought it was amazing. I would think I was probably nine. Anyway, loved that movie. Saw it in the theaters like three times, bought the DVD. Spider-Man 2, same thing. Thought it was a great movie. Uh, it's uh, a lot of people argue that it's the best superhero movie of all time. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but I do love it. And I've seen Spider-Man three a few times, and tonight I watched it again as with the mindset of like having to critique it. And as many times as I've seen it, I was telling Renee before we started recording, I didn't realize till tonight how much movie is in this movie this is a very crammed jam-packed movie so much was going on Renee and I had to keep pausing the movie to see where we were at because 30 minutes would go by and so much had happened and this is just coming from my standpoint I think the parts of the movie that were good worked really well that there is really awesome elements that you can tell Sam Raimi, who's a great director, the things that he tried in this movie that worked, worked really well. But I don't know if you know this, Renee, but there was a lot on this movie, a lot of outside voices that were trying to have their way in the movie that kind of messed up the flow. So, fun fact, Sam Raimi actually didn't want to include the black suit or Venom in this movie. I've seen a bunch of interviews where he basically said that 
he didn't know Venom very well. Venom didn't wasn't uh, created until the '90s by Todd McFarlane, who created Spawn, and he's done some Spider-Man comics. And Sam just didn't know the Venom character, and he was like, "If I don't know the character, I'm not gonna butcher him in a movie." But Avi Arad, who uh, was one one of the producers at Sony, or he might not be anymore. I'm not sure. Um, is like a super big Venom fan and the story goes that he told Sam Raimi if Sam didn't put Venom in Spider-Man 3 that the he would be letting down the fans and that basically long story short that they wouldn't sell as many toys if Venom wasn't in the movie so Venom kind of got shoehorned into the plot and I feel like I don't know this Renee watched it for the first time tonight so as someone who has never watched the movie did Venom seem like the whole black suit emo Peter thing? Did it seem natural to you, or did you did it seem really forced to you? Yeah, I mean it was pretty forced. Um, like you said, like this is the first time I've seen it, and I'm not. I mean, I love Spider Man, I love Marvel, but I didn't love Marvel and Spider Man until we started dating. Really, like I really wasn't introduced into the, like the whole universe of it, and I wasn't like thrown into any of the movies and everything Mm -hmm. until you showed me all of it so I'm still pretty new on it and I even put in my notes somewhere in here I can't find it where because I didn't know about the outside voices saying or anything but I said in my notes somewhere that it's like three different writers got pinky promise that they would have their say (laughs) in the movie and you can't break a pinky you can't break a pinky promise so it's like the director was like okay I gotta fit all these people's voices in the movie somehow and that's like what it looks like that's what it feels like you're not wrong though that's the thing (laughs) the story goes that sam raimi really wanted to focus on the peter and spoiler alert by the way if you haven't seen this movie or any of the original movies but it came out like what like 13 years ago um which makes me feel very old (laughs) but basically from the beginning of the movie after of the first movie rather i'm sorry where peter kill or Peter and Osborne fight, and Osborne accidentally kills himself. They've been building up this conflict with Peter and Harry, who have been best friends. They've been building it up through the whole trilogy. You know, Harry being jealous that his dad seemed to like Peter more than him. Now he thinks Spider-Man accidentally, or now he thinks Spider-Man on purpose killed his father, not knowing Peter and Spider-Man the second person. Spider-Man 2, Harry finds out Peter is Spider-Man, so I think everybody... When, I know I did when I was a kid. Going into part three, I was ready for, like, bam, let's go. Like, Harry's going to be the main villain. Let's go. And, and I get into it more in my notes, but I thought the Sandman was fine, too. I really I really liked his story. And I think if they would have stuck with just the Green Goblin or whatever he's called in the movie and the Sandman, that would have been fine. And Venom's one of my favorite villains or antiheroes in comics ever. But the way, and again, now we're going to get into it in our notes, but the way they do it is just so lackluster and uninspired. And you could tell that the director had no idea what to do with him. Mm-hmm. And it, this movie, I think, if more than anything, is a classic story of, wow, we really let the studio interfere. <laughs> and you have to kind of wonder how much whenever... I, I, I don't know much about filmmaking, obviously, but... I enjoy films, and it always makes me wonder, you know, I kind of look at it from my perspective of being a musician. If I was writing a song, say I was on a major label, and I was writing a song, and then 
the label would come in and be like, oh, it needs to be more radio friendly. It needs to be more poppy. And to me, it seems like that kind of scenario where it's like, no, we got to sell toys. Put this character you don't know about in there. Mm-hmm. And what's sad is it shows. I was reading in an interview before we started watching the movie. This isn't in my notes, but Sam Raimi, like back in 2015, did an interview where he said that he thought the Spider-Man 3 was awful. Coming from the person who directed the movie. And he's, like, apologized for the movie, which is heartbreaking to me because that's his art. If you're a filmmaker, that's your art. And to feel um, like you have to apologize for something that you that you spent so much effort and time on. And now, let me be clear. The movie wasn't a failure financially. Um, the you know, show, it came out on May 4th of 2007, and it made 80, $895 million in the box office. So it was... That's a pretty good chunk of change. You know, that's nothing if you go read how much Avengers Endgame made. You know, but this was way before the MCU was where it's at. So it definitely didn't bomb at the box office. The Rotten Tomato score is 63%, which isn't that great. But they set such a great universe up with these first two movies. And I really, watching it again today, I really understand why it was such a disappointment to the fans um, with part three. Yeah, like there were a few times where I had to rewind it because like I noticed that they introduced Venom or another character, but it was like that was the introduction. Like really? You know, like Venom. Yeah, it's just like it's part of the movie now. Yeah, but... <laughs> like Venom, they were what? They were like on this web thing on a date, uh, Peter and Mary Jane. And then it's like their date is over, or they're kissing or whatever. And then you just look down and there's like a spaceship crash or some kind of crash scene and Ben's just crawling across a rock and that's his introduction. Like, there's yeah. no explanation. That, a lot of that has to do with just, for, you know, shoehorning things into movies. And yeah. this movie, you know, we're going to break it down uh, scene by scene, kind of, for the most part, as much as we can. Um, but it, this movie's a mess. There's definitely things that I, that I do love as a Spider-Man fan. And you could see just where they tried in a lot of ways. But then in a lot of ways, it just doesn't work out for I feel like a lot of the things they put in the movie were more like, almost kind of like shout outs for the fans. Like, Like hey, we- Like, yeah, like, hey, we mentioned this for five seconds and, you know. But like, it's not communicated well. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you to an extent, but then at the same time, there's a lot of things that the fans are like, stop it, don't do this, you know? Yeah, yeah. We're back. So the movie starts off with, we counted, three minutes of opening credits to um, remind the viewers of what happened in the first two movies because Hollywood doesn't trust their fans to remember what happens. I was wondering more, (laughs) was it the purpose of flashback, like to remind us, or was it more of they couldn't think of any good footage to film for an opening scene, so they used footage that they've already filmed? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily that, because the opening titles sequence, like the... Graphics are pretty sweet. Like, it shows, like, the symbiote crawling on the Spider-Man suit. And you haven't seen part two, to be fair. Part two, they do the same thing. It recaps the first movie. So, that's just kind of a thing. I just, I'm kind of nitpicking with this one because it's, like, three minutes of really long credits. And I'm just, I hate credits in movies anyway. Like, 
I think Joker is a great example of how to handle credits because there's hardly any. And I think they don't show any credits in the movie until like, I think it's just like the beginning. It says Joker and then it goes straight to the movie. So I'm not a fan of like really long out credit sequences, but now I'm just being nitpicky. So it's whatever. However, on the opening credits, there is a beautiful score done by Danny Elfman. Every Spider-Man movie he was in. Um, I mean, he's, beautiful no matter what movie yeah he's great he's i didn't do my research to like make a full list of the movies he's in but yeah he's very i mean tim burton and him are like they're buds yeah he's very good at what he does for sure after you know three minutes opening credits uh we go right we start right off the bat uh on the movie and basically the movie starts off uh with peter living his best life (laughs) so uh everything's going great for him spider-man's like this big deal um everything's going great which is kind of funny because spider-man's whole story is his life basically sucking like nothing ever goes right in his life in the comics and you know the fact that he's spider-man he has to deal with so much baggage in his life because of him you know the whole with great power comes great responsibility thing right like he has this amazing gift, but his personal life suffers. But on this movie, they're freaking having parades. Like, he's selling merch. Like, it's going well. Which I guess isn't that big of a deal, but I always thought it was kind of funny. It's like, oh, this movie's going to be really upbeat. And then, like, 30 minutes takes place and you're like, oh. Whew, here we go. <laughs> so, Peter goes to MJ's play. And nobody cares about the play. And he's just, like, super stoked about it. And what I thought was funny, I put this in my notes. It's really not that big of a deal. But you can hear applause, but then it shows the crowd and nobody's clapping or smiling. (laughs) It's, like, almost, like, in the movie, it, like, breaks the fourth wall with, like, the applause track. I didn't notice that. Like, it's like, yeah! And nobody's doing anything. Um, Except Peter, you know, because he's like, that's my girl, what's up? Um, and then we're very, we're then intro- reintroduced to the very underutilized character of Harry Osborn, played by James Franco. Harry and Peter then have a confrontation in which Peter wants to explain what really happened uh, with Norman, uh, when Norman died. Sorry, I'm going to try that again. We, Harry and Peter then have a confrontation in which Peter wants to explain what really happened with Norman when he died. If they would have focused on this, I think, as the, I've already said this, if they would have focused on Peter and Harry's relationship as the main conflict of this movie have Peter or I'm sorry have Harry as the antagonist of this movie I think it would have been so much better because the payoff would have been so much more earned with all the build-up all the tension I think it would have made for such more of a better movie but again that's not going to sell toys we can't market that we got to squeeze in every villain we can see and what's I'm getting ahead of myself but I, that's the most frustrating part about this movie is the parts that I enjoyed were a lot of the Harry and Peter conflict. Because look, Tobey Maguire is a good actor. Don't think he was necessarily the right one for this movie or this trilogy of movies. But he's a great actor. James Franco, terrific actor. Their potential is there. But when the script doesn't follow up with it, it's just such a shame. They're, they're such unutilized actors in this movie. First and second movie, again, were great. But this movie, it just feels like something's missing. Like, it feels like there's a better movie somewhere else that we're not watching. Um, And I I put this in my notes, too. I don't know what to call Harry's villain name. Because his dad was a Green Goblin. 
But the Hobgoblin is like another character. Yeah. And he's kind of dressed like the Green Goblin. So I'm like, do we call him New Goblin? Do we call him Goblin Jr.? <laughs> what do we call him? And another thing I put into, like you kind of brought up earlier, the symbiote, the conflict with Harry as the Green Goblin in Mark, or um, whatever his name is, Sam the Sandman. Man. Yeah, we'll just call him Sandman. Yeah. Flint Marco is his name. Flint Marco, all these three main antagonists get introduced in 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, I have it in my <laughs> Not notes. even 20 minutes, like 10 minutes into the movie. Yeah, that's how I have it in my notes. <laughs> and it's like in order, like, first, like, number eight, you see, we randomly cut to the scene with Harry walking out of that green gas chamber thing. Yeah. Like, he's just walking out of that. His goblin steroids. Yeah, that whole scene only lasts, like, maybe 10, 15 seconds. But there's no explanation. No one else is there. It's just him. Yeah. And then you immediately cut to the scene that I brought up earlier where they're on the spider web and Venom is underneath them crawling on rocks. So within like 25, 30 seconds, there's two villains that just got introduced. And then my ne- very next note right after that, you immediately cut to the scene of the Sandman escape convict guy running and going up the ladder into his daughter's window and so that's like maybe two minutes right there of the three villains that are introduced with no context whatsoever if you're someone who's i mean maybe a little bit newer to the whole thing than i am but Mm -hmm. if you've never seen anything like the venom movie or you don't know anything about venom you don't know what's going on you don't know what that thing crawling on the rock is you don't know who this the significance of this guy running in an alley is right. it doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, I guess they expected comic book fans to get it. Well, yeah, but one to be not. fair, this is just our introduction. I I feel like it'd be too much for the fans for them to expect the fans to be like, oh, that's Sandman. Keep in mind that there's trailers and there's teasers as a promotional. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I feel like this movie had a lot of things to cover and. It's a long movie. It's, what, two hours and 30, 45 minutes? And it feels like it's so short because they crammed so much in it. So, to me, you, do you, you made a face. It, felt, it did not feel short. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like they're just trying to get to, like, like, the movie, the whole movie, and they never get there to me. But, actually, no, it almost feels like the opposite. They, it feels like they're getting to a complete different movie. Yeah. And they're so busy setting up this movie. It's kind of weird. It's hard to describe. Because it feels that way, but there's also so much going on that you feel like the movie ends like ten times. Yeah. It's so crazy. So I have two questions about the Sandman. Because honestly, out of this movie, Flint Marco Sandman is my favorite part of the whole movie. Um, Which I just discovered tonight. That he's the best part of the whole movie to me. Uh, because I found him to be the most relatable character in the film. He's not a bad... Uh, his, uh, he even tells his daughter and his wife as he's uh, leaving the house. He comes home and gets a shirt and you know, kind of sees his daughter and leaves. You know, Him and his wife have that confrontation where she's like, You're a wanted man. You might have killed somebody. You know? And he tells his daughter, He's not a bad person. He's just had bad luck. Which I think is a really relatable thing. Like... Because there's, like, this whole argument of, like, that, you know, and the whole movie kind of talks about our choices make us who we are, our choices define us. And I feel like he's the most central character that kind of pushes that message forward. But I have two questions for you, Renee. Mm-hmm. One, do you think um, he was justified in what he was doing? 
And two, what kind of sandwich was he making with that one really stale piece of bread? What do you mean by, is he justified in exactly like, what he's doing? Like, do you understand why he's doing what he does? Or do you think, no, he's just like a bad guy. He's being stupid. Well, he explains it at the very end. Yeah, but we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Well, they, but these people, they may have not seen the movie before. They're well, on the journey with us. saying. Like, <laughs> I could say, yeah, now I know why he's doing what he's doing. But at that point, no, I didn't know who this... I I don't know who the Sandman is. I've never seen this movie. But, I, but yeah, but... So, I, I don't know what he's doing, why he's doing it, why he's a wanted man. I don't know why he's having to sneak into his house. Like, I don't know anything. But just, you know, take all that out of the equation because you've watched the movie. If you're watching the movie again for the first time uh-huh. and you just see this dude, his daughter's sick, and you see how much he cares about him, are you like, yeah, like, I understand why you're doing that. I don't know what you're doing, but you're just trying to protect your daughter? Or to me, it sounds like you're already like, oh, no, he's crazy. Like, he's a bad guy. No. Like, I mean, I don't necessarily think he was a bad I mean, again, I knew nothing. So I didn't know why he was a bad guy. I knew he was running from the cops for some reason. Yeah. But um, I didn't really know that the daughter was sick either. And so, like, I, 100%, I didn't have an opinion of him because I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. They never, like, say what she's sick with. You just see she's, like, kind of has, like, a... Like a oxygen tank and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I could kind of see. She has that, like a crutch. I guess she has like some like, I don't know. Exactly. Like I don't know. This is just one of the many details in the movie that are just like she's sick. Just go with it. Next scene. And I even had <laughs> I had to pause the movie and ask you, was that his daughter? Yeah. Because they really don't even push that idea. Man, this strange little girl. I'm gonna break the law for her. Like, I'm never I met her. like I had zero idea. Like clean slate kind of thing. Like very blank canvas almost. Like I had no. Um, opinions really on him because I just had no idea what was going on. One thing I will say is as much as I do like the Sandman's motivation, you don't get a whole lot of it. <laughs> like, you see his daughter one time and mm-hmm. that's like it. He's just yeah. like, wow, my daughter. And his daughter seems fine in the moment too. Like, you're just, you're supposed, I, I see where you're coming from because you're just supposed to believe she's like an, an ill child and then like, okay, he can go do bad stuff because of it, you know? Yeah. But I don't think that's so much a flaw in that character. Well, ultimately, it is a flaw in the character in general, as I say this. But I think that's just the rushed script. You know, the the biggest problem with this movie is we can't focus on anything too much because we have a whole lot of a whole lot of boom action stuff. So, like, exposition just going to have to wait for a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, my, the most important question I have to ask you is, what was he trying to make with that bread? <laughs> I, like, dwelled on that for the next few scenes. He was breaking it, and then, like, but he had no lunch meat out. Well, maybe no he cheese. was just getting bread. I mean, some people just eat plain that bread. That dude's jacked. What is a piece of bread? He's been in prison. What is a piece of bread going to do? Anyway. That I'll, I'm just gonna, I could go on about that all night. But anyway, Peter then goes and asks Aunt May. Um, and Phil, by the way, I know Renee and I both took notes. I'm the natural, more talking, talker person. Yeah. But if you have something in your notes you want to point out, feel free to just drop it like it's hot. 
I have been so far. That's good. On the parts I feel that are actually important. That touches my heart. (laughs) Peter then goes and asks Aunt May for her blessing to marry MJ. With more Uncle Ben talk, which is arguably done well. That's the thing is, I made a joke while we watched the movie that this Aunt May is old as crap. Like, she's like 92. Yeah. But she's, to me, is a good actress. I know you have a problem with her accent. I didn't say I have a problem. I was just kind of <laughs> confused. Because, again, like, lack of context here. Like, of course, Aunt May is old. I think everyone's kind of pointed that out at this point. Like, why is his aunt 60, 70 year old, years older than him? <laughs> but you start to notice she has, I don't like, know this, if she's 70 years older than I don't him. know. I don't... You, whatever. <laughs> but... She has like this German accent or something. Like, German, like slightly <laughs> German or something. European that covers. She a does lot. kind of have like an elderly English type thing. The it's, way she says words, Peter, you know, like that kind of. But thing? it's a little bit more. I don't know how to explain it. A little bit more aggressive. I don't know. Aggressive. <laughs> Freaking aggressive, Aunt May. It's just not British or anything, or it's not Irish. It's something else that's European. And so it's like (laughs) subtly there, and it's like, well, who is Aunt May? Wow. (laughs) Well, anyway, I'm I'm glad. This is very interesting to see what we've taken from the movie individually. Um, Anyway, she then gives Peter, you know, she has a really nice talk with Peter about how his Uncle Ben proposed to her and stuff. And I love all the scenes with Aunt May in these movies. She kills it. She didn't get Peter the wedding ring. Um, and what I do love about this Aunt May the most is she seems way more relatable than the new Aunt May we have in the Tom Holland movies. Uh, I feel like sometimes um, the Tom Holland... You're making a face at me, but this is my spiel. I feel like the Aunt May in these Tom Holland movies has a really weird relationship with Tom Holland. Like, she's more like a, yo, what's up, bro? Because she's like only... 30. I feel like she's only in the movie to get hit on, though. Like, I feel like that, and that's like the joke, you know, because MCU's funny, everything's gotta be funny. Yeah, yeah. But, like, just, and she's like, her and Peter have a relationship, but she, she seems almost like the girl best friend who puts you in the friend zone that's not gonna date you, but just roll with me. I, I have a good theory. She, her relationship with Peter almost reminds me of like your cool cousin who dates all the hot girls. And you can't get a date, so she's trying to hook you up. She doesn't give me a whole lot of, like, adult guardian vibes with Peter. And maybe they wrote her that way on purpose because they didn't want her to be, like, you know, because she's, what, in her 40s? They didn't want her to be, like, oh, Peter. Exactly. Like, I don't think she was specifically, this one, I don't think she was written in to be the motherly figure. I think she was written in to be someone that um, Peter just needs yeah. you know and she's there for him when he needs or, yeah when he needs her yeah but i think that's about uh, all they want her to be maybe i'm just uber nostalgic with this with these movies but i just the, nobody's ever gonna beat this Aunt May for me like sally fields was the worst Aunt May in the mark webb series with andrew garfield and Emma, Emma Stone. For some reason, I don't remember that. Oh, uh, dude, we'll watch Amazing Spider-Man 2 for another really bad movie. That one is arguably worse than Spider-Man 3. Oh. Yeah, it's it's time. Anyway, so the first action sequence begins 30 minutes into the movie with Harry and Peter. Uh, Harry swoops in on his um, flying snowboard. 
Yeah, it, but it's so abrupt. Well, it was, they were trying to jump scare people, but I guess. But, I mean, there really wasn't even a lead. I mean, I know, yeah, like, everyone... He got Chloe, really heated at that mo- at that theater. Something like that. That play really like, triggered him. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's going to try to kill Peter because of his dad. But at the same time, like, build up to it. This is a whole separate movie. That's, well, that's the thing. It was built up, but I do agree with you in a sense, because why now? Yeah. He found out... That Peter was Spider-Man. Again, you haven't seen the second movie, spoiler alert again. I have. You've seen Spider-Man 2? You made me watch it. I have not. You've only watched the first one on me and the third one. But um, Spider-Man 2, Harry, like the Dr. Octopus makes Harry kidnap Peter. And Harry takes Spider-Man's mask off. He's like, oh, Peter, you killed my poppy. And Peter's like, okay, I gotta go. But... What's aggravating about this is Peter is never until this moment that he gets attached. Hey, I really... Well, I know, I guess. At the theater, he tells him, hey, I didn't kill your dad. But, like... But that was even, like, a wrong time and place to do that. Like, hey, I know we just left my girlfriend's theater thing, but I did not kill your dad. Yeah. While you're getting into this taxi, I did not kill your dad. (laughs) But with that being said, too, why is Harry, like, oh, man... I'm really, now is the time to come after you. Why didn't he attack him when he had him back in parts? Anyway, yeah. that's a whole other thing for yeah. a whole other day. Yeah. Um, I also put in my notes, why does his costume look like a snowboarding suit? Um, because he's basically wearing a sweater, boots, a flying snowboard, and like a ski mask. I thought he was wearing um, the armor, like the dad. Well, I mean, I'm aware it's armor, but it, it, he's not wearing a whole lot of it. Oh. And to me, he just looks like a snowboarder. <laughs> Um, but yeah, then the, the slow mo scene. And I'm sure you put this in your notes too because you laughed whenever it happened. Where at the slow the, in their first fight in the sky when Peter has the wedding ring? There's a slow motion scene where it looks like Peter's gonna lose the wedding ring, and I put that this is the first the slow mo scene is our first cringe Toby face moment of the movie. <laughs> I did kind of talk about that, but not so much the slow mo. I talked about just the close ups. Like, what I literally wrote is the close-ups on Peter's face through the whole fight, and when he drops the engagement ring especially, are too much. And then I just said, such drama. Yeah. Toby, <laughs> dude, Toby, I don't want to say he overacts, but he just has, like, the face of, like, a sick puppy. Like, he, that's why I feel like a lot of people can't take him seriously. Because, like, his little lip quivers, <laughs> and he's just like, like, and whenever I picture Spider-Man, I picture, like, a cocky little kid. Exactly. You know, you know, Spider-Man's an emotional, <laughs> complex character. But something about Toby's face, and when Toby... I'm going to do some research. Like, I wrote in How my notes somewhere, like, this... So far, in this first 30 Toby. minutes, I think, that we're in, it just feels like a parody movie. <laughs> like... It feels like there's another actor pretending to be Toby. Toby Maguire was 30 when he filmed Spider-Man 3. I just looked that up right now. He was 30 years old and babyface. I mean, you can tell he's in his 30s. But how can he make those baby faces? But that's just (laughs) like a lot of people's problem with him is he looks like a little kid. And so, yeah, I put that. There's plenty more Toby cringe face moments in the movie. I also put in my own notes, little did I know when I saw this in 2007, 
how bad the CGI was in some spots. I tried to like be really forgiving about that because it was 2007. So, but the first and second movie made so much money. There's no excuse, right? Well, I well mean, think about it. And then a year later, Iron Man comes out. Great CGI. Not perfect. Oh, yeah. Never mind. Great CGI. No, there's no excuse then. But again, I think it's just another example of a movie being rushed. Yeah. Too many cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on Avi Arad. I want to do an episode on Venom eventually. Yeah. Because I love the movie, but it's. I feel bad. like the main thing we could make fun of, though, is just his accent. I, I'm Venom. <laughs> yeah, but. um. Anyway, so I also put that I guess Pete's Spidey Sense only works part time because there's a part during the the fight where he's throwing those daggers at him and it's like hitting Peter. I'm like, why isn't your Spider Sense? I working? didn't even think about that. There's parts through all of these movies and pretty much every live adaptation of Spider Man, whether it be Toby, Andrew, or Tom. There's moments where the Spidey Sense just doesn't work. That was like a big plot point in Far From Home. You know, yeah, like, they called it as Peter Tingle and it didn't work. You yeah, know? so at least in that, in those movies, they pointed it out. Yeah. So, like, you know, they know what's going on, kind of thing. But with this, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Do you have anything in your notes about this fight scene? Um, the only other thing I wrote on that was, like, it just... The, it's the whole thing with this movie. Is it just jumps straight from one thing to the next? There's no good bridge in between anything. There's no part where you take a breath. Yeah, know? like I just said, it just jumps straight in and lasts for like five-ish minutes. And then I was like, I'm sure the reasoning is because Harry's dad died, whatever. But then through the whole fight, really, until the last minute or so of it, there's no talking. Yeah. All they do is grunt at each other. That's true. <laughs> and, like, it's just kind of awkward. Like, I don't know what's going on. And honestly, like, what's so funny about that is we, we've already talked so much about how jam-packed the movie is. Yeah. You know, like, we have so many notes. I didn't expect to make this many notes. Exactly. We're probably not going to get through most of them. No, I'm kind of, like, condensing um, a lot of it. But this movie was so long, but it felt so rushed. Like, if they, this movie would have benefited so well. Again, it's not like a broken record. Take some plot points out. Let the things that work breathe. Yeah. Um, then, of course, Harry hits his head on the pipe. Um, one thing I put in my notes is how did Peter explain what happened to Harry without blowing his cover? Because Peter is obviously the one who took him to the hospital. What, how is he going to explain the injury? Like, oh, yeah, we were fighting. I was web swinging. He was gliding. And he hit his head. Like, huh. And I mean, he goes to the hospital. What did Peter do with Harry's outfit? What did Peter do with his weapons? Like maybe he just said something like it was a skateboard accident. We were know. we were air snowboarding, okay? <laughs> and it just got ugly. And then of course Harry wakes up, and uh, what a coincidence! He has amnesia. You know, of course that's great. Um, yeah. Then which. I don't know about you. I've never been a fan of amnesia storylines. I think it's a really big cop out. Well, at least his didn't last for long. Yeah. But what I wrote in it, I was like, yeah, he doesn't remember much, but that's what the doctor said. The doctor literally only said, he's doing fine. He's stable. He doesn't remember anything that happened. 
But then after he leaves the hospital, and even in the hospital bed, really, he's acting like he's 10. Yeah. So why is he acting like he's 10? I put that in my notes, too. He be, he gets really bro-like. Like, it's everything's really, like, yo, dude, yeah, bro, like, hey, pal. That, like, but then also, like, the way he starts to hit on Mary Jane, he's, like, it's, like, blushing and, like, a 10-year-old trying to hit on a girl. Like, it's big almost, grin, like, I wrote a play for you. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, like he reverts back to his childhood. I don't know if that was intentional or if that was just James Franco being extra. I don't know. Which wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I put... Um, the, for the next scene, it, um, lost my train of thought. <laughs> we'll edit this part out. The next scene, it shows where the Sandman's trying to escape because the law is running after him. And he gets, where well, Renee and I aren't even necessarily sure what it is. Um, it's like a sanded machine. It's like a big hole in the ground. It that is, spins. Yeah, it's full of sand and then it has like this big metal, like a claw machine. Like the claw. But it spins. <laughs> now, this is where I think this podcast is going to be interesting. At least, at least for me. I don't know if the viewers will like it. But I, I'm the type of person when I watch a movie, I can take a scene that's probably not meant to be that analyzed. And I will torment myself over it. And this is one of those scenes. It's two in the morning, right? Because you have to imagine Peter and Harry's fight was probably late at night. Probably like nine or ten. Probably nine or ten. Keeping the fact the hospital trip, all this stuff. And it's clear that it's nighttime where yeah. Marco is. Yeah. It's I would assume at least after midnight. Oh, yeah. I would like to imagine in my own little train of thought, probably like 2 a.m. Sure. And he goes in there. The, everybody's working, number one, which they could be on the night shift. That's fair. Yeah, because they're like scientists or something. I they mean. go in there. Oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention, they, the police find out because they say that the Ben Parker case, the witness, they found him. Because why not throw in a, an a unnecessary part? I didn't in there. catch that part. Really. Yeah, the, right before they go after him, they're like, oh, we found the, the suspect and... Um, that's the word, not witness, but suspect oh. in the Ben Parker case, and that's why they end up chasing him to the Sam Bill thing. Okay. He's inside of the thing, and the worker goes, Huh, oh, there's something blocking the whatever. And he said, It's probably just a bird. It's probably just a bird. <laughs> so think about this. I know it's a movie, people. I get it. I was gonna bring that but up. But it's probably just a bird? Like, nothing in you is just like, dude, it could be a kid, it could be a cat, it could be anything. That's probably just a bird. Let's chance it. I was Again, it's probably it. not that big yeah. of a deal, but it makes me so angry every time I see it. And anyway. It, just, it makes about as much sense as anything else in this movie and to me. Why are they, what, what time is it? Why are they still working? And then we have, um, you know, this movie jumps all over the place. So the events, if they seem like the events aren't in order, this is literally how the movie went, people. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, Peter and MJ go to check out here. Heater. <laughs> I'll leave that one in. They go to check out Harry. And um, Harry, just what a coincidence, has amnesia. Yeah. But he can only um, remember... Like long term things, he can't remember. He doesn't have short term memory. Yeah, but he knows that his dad died. Yeah, but I call bullcrap on him because if he knows his if he knows his dad died, 
Shouldn't he have like a s- small percentage of his brain that's like, but how did he die? He should. Right. Like, I don't know. And I can, I could just be nitpicking him. So sue me. But I'm one of those people, like, if you're going to make a plot point and you're going to make, like, um, you know, a character art for a person, it's got to make sense. Yeah, yeah. But again, this movie, they just really wanted to do all this stuff and wanted to be this epic big explosions and, you know, who needs a plot, right? Who needs plot? So anyway, he has amnesia and I put this in my notes or I even showed it to you when I watched the movie. This is another example of James Franco acting like an eight-year-old boy. In this movie, as soon as Mary Jane walks in, the look on... I wish we could oh, yeah. explain the look on Frank, it's Franco's like face. It's like an eight-year-old boy asking his girlfriend if he want, if she wants to like go to McDonald's or something. And he quote, and, and quote, this is his response when Mary Jane walks in. I know that face! Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so weird. unnecessary. Like, it's not a bad acting... It's just weird. Like, it doesn't make sense. The tone in this movie is all over the place. Then we have the not-so-subtle foreshadowing when Harry says to the nurse of their best friends that he'd give his life for them. Oh. Very on-the-nose foreshadowing. Yeah. Anyway, then we have the scene, which I think is a beautiful scene, of Flint Marco coming out of the sand and becoming the Sandman. Best scene in the movie for sure. You it can, is, you can yeah. tell that's what ninety percent of the effect special effects budget went. Oh, hundred percent. Like it looks so good. Yeah, and I wrote down like I think it's a really cool scene and everything. But this is where I get nitpicky What's for that? no reason really. But and this is just something I noticed. So yeah, he's Sandman. He can turn into sand. This, when he was in the spinner thing, it like got into his skin and in his DNA and stuff. So now he can turn into sand. Why do his clothes turn into sand? That is the age old question with every transformation ever. Like, why can he change his clothing to sand in back? Like, that's I don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's really there's really not a good that's answer a lot for of, it, but that's where I get nitpicky. A, a lot of these details in the movie, you just again, the, I think they just want you to be like, don't worry about it. Probably, <laughs> like, yeah. You came to watch Spider Man beat up people, and that's what's gonna happen. Exactly. The next scene is uh, <laughs> one of the many awkward confrontations with Mary Jane and Peter. Yeah. And I'm not gonna cover all these, but the basic moral of the story is Mary Jane's. Trying to confide in Peter, which gotta give props to Sam Raimi for this. The first two movies, MJ was literally in the movie to like not date Peter and then want to date Peter and then not date Peter and to be overly happy all the time. Like in the first movie, her life was like crap and she was just like forced to smile and be happy. So Mary Jane's had a crappy life and she's really on her own trying to do this thing with being a professional singer and being in this play. Every time she tries to confront Peter or confide in him, confronts a bad word, but confide Peter, mm-hmm. confide in Peter and uh, try to vent to him, he always just turns it to like, oh, well, Spider-Man would do this or whatever. And it, that's where the friction in the relationship is, is this whole movie, I won't touch on all my notes. You can if you want to, but, but I, I wrote a lot about how self-absorbed Peter is in this movie, which I think was a cool approach to take because... Especially in Spider-Man 2, Peter's life is garbage, right? Like, Spider-Man was a big sacrifice for him. That's why him and Mary Jane's relationship suffered. In this movie, it's like he's finally got everything he wants, 
But now the one person who really cares about him is suffering for it, which I thought was a smart approach. However, it wasn't delivered in the best way in a lot of parts. Like, I feel like they could have delivered it a lot better. And again, I don't think Toby Bavar is a bad actor. No. But he's just so goofy that anytime they talk, he's like, oh, Spider-Man, you know, you got to believe in yourself, you know? You know, your dreams are going to come true. It just, it's like over top, if I was Mary Jane, I would have dipped. Like, yeah. See, you know? but on that same scene, I took a different approach to that. Let it rip. Fire away. See, so like, I totally see where it's like Peter is definitely self-absorbed. And maybe it's because I, like, I'm not super into these movies. Or I haven't really seen them. So maybe that's what this comes from. But... I thought Mary Jane kind of got upset with him for no reason. Ooh! Tea! Well, because, like, she started to tell him that, like, you know, the critics were mean to her. They didn't like her and everything. And he started off like, that's what critics do. I mean, it's kind of their name. They criticize. Ah. And so he was starting to, like, just say, like, think about it. I'm a superhero. I save our city and people still criticize me. And so that's wonder, like showing her like no matter what you do or how good you are, someone out there is not going to like you. And I think he didn't mean that in as like, I'm a Spider-Man. That's like, fair. I think it was more of like, hey, I know exactly what you're going through. Oh, and so, okay. That's good insight. And, but she got super upset. It was like, it's not about you. I don't think he meant it in that way. <laughs> I wonder if that was actually Tobey Maguire acting as Spider-Man when he was talking about critics are going to criticize and no matter what he does, he's going to get ridiculed. Or if that was Tobey Maguire method acting or like breaking the script, being like, I'm trying really hard to be Spider-Man. Okay? <laughs> um, yeah. I also put this, I, I put a lot of stuff in my notes looking over and it's just silly, but after Mary Jane leaves the room, we see the symbiote. <laughs> Uh, that crash landed and then got on their bike and followed him home. Yeah. He's just chilling in Peter's room. <laughs> yeah. For the, like half of the movie. Like, oh, I'm not going to bond with him. And that's the thing in the comic symbiotes. And even Dr. Connors explains it in the movie. The symbiote has to bond to a host or it's going to die. Yeah. And Venom, the 2018 version with my the best song in the world by Eminem on the soundtrack. The symbiote wants to bond with Eddie so bad because it needs a host. Riot in the movie needs to bond with people. That's why he bonds with a poodle and a little girl and then an Asian person, which are all terrible choices if he wants to bond to live. But we'll talk about the flaws in that movie on another day. (laughs) But why is he just chilling in Peter's room? I know. I have number 22 on my notes. It literally... I said, oh, another little random scene with Venom crawling around for three seconds. Because Ugh. that's all it, it is. I'm just waiting for Peter to get mad about something. Exactly. Like, it's oh, yeah, so and bonkers. then when that finally happens, I have a point on that. Okay, later. so the next point I made is probably the hardest thing for Well, the second hardest thing for me to talk about this movie. And I'm just going to read you my note in the exact way I typed it. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> Topher Grace. <laughs> now let me let me just clarify. This is not going to be an hour long podcast, by the way. This will probably be like an hour and a half, but it's Which fine. Which is fine. It's our first. It's one. fine. They can listen, or if they don't want to listen, we'll just take it really personal and cry. I listen to podcasts when I'm doing dishes. So where are they going to go? Where it's COVID nineteen. <laughs> We're fine. So um, 
Anyway, let me just let me just pre- preface this. I'm okay with Topher Grace as a person. Yeah. You know, I've written more, that '70s show. I just finished that show. You kind of finished it. You dipped out on most of it, but it to me is an amazing show. I think it's just as good as Friends. Hot take of the day. I think it's better than a lot of shows. Yeah. I think it's very slept on. I think it's a terrific show. I love Topher Grace as Eric Foreman, and that's the problem with this movie. He's Eric Foreman fighting Spider-Man to me. Everything about him, he's the same character. And I don't know, I did my research. You know, Eric, or I'm sorry, Topher Grace leaves that 70s show for like a season or two to go film this movie. And I just don't know if he was able to like shake off how he acts in that 70s show and translate it to Vince. Because it was very like... Like, um, I expect him to be like, yo, where's Donna any minute now? Like, he acts just like Eric Foreman. I don't, I don't think he does. I mean, you've watched that 70s show more than me. But in that 70s show, he's very, like, awkward, unsure of himself, Eddie timid. Brock. Eddie no, Brock. Eddie Brock is a douche. <laughs> Eddie Brock is a douche. He's, like, That's very fair. abrupt in people's face, like, leaning over the secretary's desk, hitting on her. Eric Foreman's Eric like that, Foreman too. would not. Eric Foreman would do that and pee on himself. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if, I mean, we'll have to agree to disagree. Yeah. But I, all I saw was Eric Foreman the whole time. And you're right. Maybe it is because I watched the show. Or maybe Topher Grace is a one-trick pony. That Christian movie we saw with Eric or with Topher Grace, I thought he acted like Aaron For- Eric Foreman in he that does movie, too. In that one, yeah. Like if Eric Foreman was a youth pastor. So maybe Topher Grace is just a one-trick <laughs> pony. I know he was in, like, Take Me Home Tonight and a bunch of movies that I've never seen. But anyway, they cast him. This is, okay, again, they shoehorn Venom into this movie. They, Sam Raimi doesn't want to do it. He doesn't know about him. Avi Arad's like, no, we have to have Venom in the movie. So they get Topher Grace to play the most brutal Spider-Man villain. Now, a lot of people try to argue that, well, they needed to get someone who is like the evil version of Tobey Maguire. Topher Grace is like the rebellious version of Tobey Maguire, which I get that. Okay, yeah, I get but that. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I'm doesn't. not disagreeing with you when you say it doesn't work. It didn't work. Yeah. But I don't see him as Eric Foreman, is my thing. Well, then that's just like your opinion, man. Like what I literally wrote, number 27, <laughs> I said, Eddie is literally a douche. Is he hitting on the secretary? Isn't he dating Gwen? This was before I found out that that was just like a fake. Yeah. I don't know. And then I said, he's not... I said, well, he's not a douche, but is visibly trying to be one. It's not just working for him, or it's just not working for him. I'm not sure if that's bad acting or what happened. <laughs> that's so... Probably a little bit of both. Yeah. You touched on him and Gwen. I like the fact that he considers them dating, but they went on one date. and she get coffee. Yeah, and she doesn't even like him. No. And it shows because whenever she's, like, <laughs> modeling in the business... In, like, the business office, like... A million stories in the air because that's where all good photo shoots happen is in like a Dunder Mifflin. Of course. So and then she falls. I put in my notes, thank God for the world's strongest telephone cord. I have the same thing. I said a telephone in all caps saved her for a moment before it snapped. I said it shouldn't have even saved her for the few seconds that it did. She's a lot heavier than 10 pounds. Yeah. And like- then when the telephone cord breaks, she grabs onto the side of the building to nothing. Yeah. 
She holds on to nothing. Yeah. She literally is in one position. I'm making the stance on my like arms. She's, she's literally sitting with her, up on her elbows. Her, on her elbows. What is she holding on to? Yeah. I Maybe she's Spider-Gwen and this is into the Spider-Verse in live action and we've just been duped Sleeping. all along. Yeah. And then I also noticed they try to recreate. <coughs> uh, recreate. <laughs> uh, I'm hunting wabbits. They try to recreate Gwen's death. Like, they tried to tease Gwen's death scene in the comics where she falls and Peter, like, tries to lever. Yeah. Um, for those of you who can't watch it at home, I'm making all the actions with my hands as we're talking. Yeah. Um, which they tease in the first Spider-Man movie with Mary Jane. And, yeah, they just really wanted Gwen to die. Um, anyway, um, you know, they kind of tease a love triangle when Gwen uh, comes into the movie we then go uh, on to a scene. I'm going to kind of fly through some of these. Yeah. Eddie then tells Spidey he's took Peter's job. Peter goes to J. Jonah Jameson, who is amazingly played by J.K. Simmons. So glad he's back in Spider-Man movies. Also, we're 36 minutes into the film, and we've only had two action scenes and a lot of mopey sadness. Yeah, it has been a lot of sadness. Which I complained about at first, but towards the end of the movie, I'm like... Stop with all the things. Stop with all the plot. Because it gets so heavy. Also, fun fact. I always forget Elizabeth Banks is in these movies. She's from uh, Pitch Perfect and like... Where was she? She's uh, the secretary. Oh! Who Eddie hits on. Oh. And then she's like, hey Pete, you better get in there. Oh, okay. So anyway, have I mentioned that I hate Topher Grace in this movie? Because I hate <laughs> Topher Grace in this movie. In my notes, I put, he's just a douchebag version of Eric Foreman. Yeah, now, yeah. in the midst of all this crap, you know, we get some, you know, throwaway dialogue with, you know, J. J Jonah Jameson's like, oh, between you and Brock, bring me the best picture of Spider-Man, blah, blah, blah. But then we get a little shining bright light in this turd cycle. We get my favorite, and I'm serious when I say this, my favorite cameo from the legendary Stanley. Rest in peace. I don't know what it is about it, but when Stanley comes up to Peter and says, you know, I guess one person really can make a difference. That has always been my favorite cameo. I don't know why. It's I guess because he actually gets to talk, and I know that there's a lot more like silly cameos he's in, like the one in Deadpool's Nuts. And all the other cameos is in, but this one just really touches my heart. And this one feels genuine. Like he's really saying, you know, one person can make a difference. Yeah. While all the others, he's perfectly placed to be acting. Yeah. You know, this one's genuine. I feel like, a, I don't know, too. And just since he's passed away and I've watched his documentary, I feel like I know a lot more about him after watching that documentary. So yeah. that just seems like something he'd say. But yeah. I'm going to get in my feels uh, if we talk about it anymore. I put a note in here about new Harry's newly amnesia brain where he's like a super bro now. Like, he's like, yeah, buddy, pal, bro, Peter, dude, man, pal. I wouldn't say bro necessarily because when I think of someone being bro, I'm thinking of like Kyle. Oh, that's very Like a Kyle, like monster drinking, truck hitting Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> he, why would he hits his truck? <laughs> Probably. So, anyway, um... Uh, then we flash forward to Peter getting the key to the city. Uh, then one part of my uh, notes I took, yes. again, another nitpicky thing, as he stands above all these people <coughs> not wearing a mask. Nobody sees him. But he just, I'm just going to not wear my mask in front of all these people. Huh. 
Like, there's a shot of him without his mask on looking at all the crowd. He's like, they like me. They really like me. I didn't see that. Dude, there's a lot of really cheesy moments in this movie we probably missed. We well, I heard it, and I wanted to make a note about the whole, they really like me. Because he said that twice. This is twice now in this movie. Yeah. That he's been like, they really like me. But... So anyway, uh, we're going to kind of fly through a lot of this, but Peter, you know, then asks Gwen to kiss him, even though he knows MJ is in the crowd. Yes. And not only do they kiss, they do that upside down Spider-Man classic kiss. Yeah, and that's like MJ and him. But then he... Their kiss. And then he gets called away to fight the Sandman, and thank God there was just a big semi-truck full of sand in the middle of New York. Uh, That worked out really well. Yes. Um, So anyway, they have their fight. Uh... Here's my another one of my questions. If Harry Harry goes to the Spider-Man rally, talks to MJ, he's surrounded by Spider-Man's face, and it doesn't trigger any memories. Amnesia hit him hard. But he could remember just for that little bit. But like, I just the way they handled the amnesia storyline is so sloppy. It's like he can remember so many things, but seeing Spider-Man, don't you think that would be like? That's who killed my dad, right? Like It's very convenient. Very convenient amnesia. I also, I always get a little baby vomit in my mouth when Spider-Man swings to the rail and says, Shazam! Oh, yeah. I always think that's really bad. But anyway. In a way, it's bad, but at the same time, he's supposed to be what? Well, I guess technically now he's supposed to be like in his 20s. He's probably in his mid-20s in the movie. Oh, never mind then. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah, so anyway... Peter kisses Gwen in front of everybody. Goes to the next day where Peter's at this dinner trying to propose to MJ. MJ is trying to talk to him. She doesn't bring up the kiss or anything, but then Gwen comes in and the love triangle tension has begun. She's like, oh, I love Peter. He's my science partner. Oh, I want that picture of the Spider-Man cast. And Peter's just like, yeah, whatever. And this is another... I hope people understood that. Yeah, hopefully so. (laughs) We'll put translations in the description. (laughs) Peter also is so oblivious and so self-absorbed in this movie, in my opinion, that he's just like, oh yeah, I totally kissed this blonde girl in front of my girl that I'm going to propose to and she should just like get over it. Yeah, he's very oblivious. And I don't know if it was like bad acting in this scene or like they really just wanted to push on that Peter's just being a dummy. When MJ's like... Starts to act jealous of her, and Peter's just like, where'd that come from? And then Mary Jane's like, you kiss, was that you kissing her, or was that Spider-Man kissing her? And I even told Renee as we were watching this, the look on his face is so stupid. He's just like, oh? Well, he keeps the same face, like, stone. Like, it doesn't move. His, for stone, that his whole, stoned puppy dog face. Like, that whole time. It's just, like, <laughs> frozen, and it's so, it's a weird face. And it, it's just, and it goes, it happens so many times in this movie where Peter tries, or Mary Jane tries to up out to Peter and he just makes it all about him. Yeah. Um, well, no surprises here. We talk way too much. But that's okay. It's a crazy movie. A lot's going on. So we hope you enjoyed the first episode uh, of Bad Movie Buds podcast where we have covered Spider-Man 3. Uh, this coming Thursday, we're going to go on ahead and upload part two instead of making you wait a whole other week. And we really hope you guys tune in until then, make sure and click like on the bad movie buds. That's B U D Z, uh, on Facebook and share, um, share the page with your friends and get some hype. Renee, do you have anything you want to tell the beautiful people? Thanks for listening. All right. See you guys Thursday. Um, yeah, be good to each other. Peace out.